Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin has been condemning North Korea's ongoing nuclear and missile program. He describes the tests as a flagrant violation of U.N. rules. But he does say that resolving the crisis is impossible without fresh talks. Here to tell us more is Ariel Cohen. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and director of the Center for Energy and Natural Resources and Geopolitics at the IAGS. And he joins us on the phone. Ariel, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. What do you make of uh, President Vladimir Putin's comments and also uh, his uh, conference uh, with the joint news conference with the South uh, Korean uh, leader, Moon Jae-in? In the best case scenario, Putin is trying to elbow himself into a negotiating position and be a mediator. But I'm looking at the worst case scenario in which Russia... Uh, is trying to um, replace China as the great power sponsor of North Korea. Uh, the remarks were unprecedented because uh, Kim Jong-un uh, is breaking uh, decades-long policy of nonproliferation that the Soviet Union and then Russia, China, and the five permanent members of the United Nations, including the United States, were always supporting. We were always against uh, proliferating uh, nuclear weapons to new actors, be it Pakistan uh, or Iran or North Korea. And what we see now is a sea change in which Russia uh, is effectively supporting Kim Jong-un, saying no sanctions, no military action. So what are we supposed to do? Uh, To kiss him? So uh, this is bad news, and also I'm looking how uh, the North Korean uh, missile, uh, nuclear weapons, um, and uh, miniaturization of warheads capacities are going up. And I suspect, I don't have a proof, I don't have access to classified materials or intercepts of their emails or phone calls, but I suspect maybe, just maybe, Russian technology is leaking into North Korea as we speak. Well, maybe you could give us the context for this, because this would not be the first time that uh, Russia, or in previous guises, the Soviet Union, uh, was a supporter of North Korea. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The grandfather um, uh, of the current leader, uh, Kim uh, uh, Kim Il-sung uh, was... He say, I, I believe he even saw himself maybe as a, as a competitor or as a challenger to the mantle of, uh, uh, of leader uh, to Mao Zedong at the time. Well, he was, of course, uh, a much uh, smaller player, but he was indeed an asset of the, Russian, of the Soviet military. He served in the Soviet military as they rolled uh, into Korea during the war with Japan. Uh, and uh, he uh, indeed was uh, very, he was a Stalinist. He, he was uh, a product of that era, uh, a totalitarian leader. What's fascinating with North Korea, North Korea is, the, is probably the only uh, Stalinist dictatorship left on the planet uh, with these parades and with uh, uh, absolute uh, political uh, reporting uh, when people are uh, ratting each other out to the authorities. Uh, so um, 
with time, they started to push away uh, his son, uh, pushed away both the Russian faction and the Chinese faction eventually. And now the grandson um, uh, is, of course, cracking down on the pro-Chinese and even killing some of the members of his family who were pro-China. So the relationship with China is complicated. But nevertheless, both China and Russia are using North Korea as a battering ram against the United States and our interests in the Pacific as well as against our allies, uh, the uh, Japanese and the South Koreans. So can you lay out a scenario in which there is some resolution that is peaceful? Well, in the ideal world, uh, and uh, this, is, this looks less and less realistic, in the ideal world, the great powers, the U.S., China, and uh, Russia, uh, will say we don't need a, a malignant proliferator. We, we know about the ties between North Korea and Iran. Um, most probably Iranians have more money from oil sales. They give the money to Kim. Uh, Kim also proliferated nuclear uh, weapons technology to Syria. You remember in 2007, I believe, or 2006, the Israelis in a night strike destroyed uh, a plutonium reactor in Syria, a reactor that uh, was based on uh, North Korean technology. Uh, so uh, they are a malignant proliferator and uh, great powers, if they were responsible, if they behaved as adults, would get together and uh, squelch uh, that regime's ability to produce uh, nuclear weapons and the means to deliver ballistic missiles. Now we are, I think, uh, on the cusp of a whole new ballgame in which we may be hit mm. with a nuclear weapon from North Korea, real, realistic possibility, I hope. Uh, as, as we not. as we all do, we hope this does does not happen. I want to thank you, Ariel Cohen. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources, and Geopolitics. Hurricane Irma has damaged buildings and infrastructure in the eastern Caribbean, packing winds of 185 miles per hour. The storm made landfall in Barbuda around uh, 2 a.m. this morning. And here to help us understand what's next is Shanandu Basu, meteorologist and gas analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Shanandu, always a pleasure. Thanks for uh, joining me. Tell us uh, the latest on uh, Hurricane Irma. Irma. Hey, Pim. Yeah, great to be here. So Irma, very powerful storm right now. Today, as of the advisory put out by the National Hurricane Center this morning, the track has actually shifted just a little far east. So as it heads up right now, um, it's actually heading about, you know, northwest. And then once it reaches just north of Hispaniola, it's going to be making the right turn as we can see on the, you know, the projected track here. And they'll be grazing, you know, the east coast of Florida, but of course impacting the entire state. The uh, the, the warnings that have gone out for this Category 5 storm are in Puerto Rico, uh, as well as uh, the islands of St. Kitts, Nevis, the Virgin Islands, uh, and as you said, Hispaniola, uh, Dominican Republic, and Haiti. Cuba also being threatened. Uh, has, yes. uh, has there been any uh, update on whether this storm is still going to uh, cause widespread destruction in those places? 
It certainly is. You know, very, very high winds. We have winds in excess of 170 miles per hour with an incredible storm surge. We expect the hurricane itself to strengthen for at least another 48 hours or strengthen or rather keep its current um, its current energy going. And then by the time we get to about Friday or Saturday, that's when we'll maybe start to see a slight decline in its, in its power. And then it'll dec- probably get downgraded to a category three or four just before making landfall. Well, there's a report that, for example, roofs roofs were ripped off buildings and homes were flooded on the islands of uh, St. Bartholomew and St. Martin. The eye of the storm passed overhead. Uh, Is there uh, going to be any lingering effects in terms, let's start with uh, transport, and I'm thinking of oil that needs to come out of uh, Venezuela and be refined. Yes, so there are a few number, the number of refineries that are in the way, certainly. Those are on the islands um, that you mentioned previously and also a couple in the DR and Haiti. And so any ships that are trying to make their way over there are certainly not going to be able to um, in the coming days. Now, as far as the actual assets are concerned, the refineries, those may definitely be out of service until further recovery efforts can be put into place. And in many places, of course, electricity is out and the infrastructure has been destroyed. That's going to take time to rebuild. It certainly is, yes. The uh, effects perhaps in the United States, uh, because of this eastward turn, what will it mean? Just uh, large amounts of rain and and wind, or will it, uh, I mean, are we still bracing for a hurricane to hit the Florida coast? Yes, it's going to, you know, it's a major hurricane at the end of the day. And yes, that does mean a lot of rain, certainly, you know, 20 to 25 inches in parts at least, if not more, with very, very high winds along uh, along the coast. Uh, because of the trajectory of Irma right now, Hurricane Irma, um, we could see effects as far north as the Carolinas into next week. And that's something, of course, that we'll have to keep an eye on as the storm progresses. Will there be any effects, you think, in the Gulf of Mexico as a result of uh, Irma? Well, currently, any uh, ship traffic and tanker traffic that's out there may very well be affected. Of course, this is a very large storm. It covers a very large area. And so as a result, we can definitely expect some maritime effects in the eastern half of the Gulf of Mexico, for sure. Is, is that unusual, the, the size of the storm? Not necessarily the ferocity, but the, but the actual size. Uh, the size is not so unusual. I mean, we've certainly seen hurricanes that are very large in the recent past. Um, but the intensity, of course, as we know, this is the most powerful Atlantic hurricane in history, which is incredible in of itself. Well, I know also that uh, there have been efforts already underway. I mean, uh, the president has uh already uh, declared a disaster area in order to uh, facilitate the emergency evacuation. And um, Governor Rick Scott uh, said that the storm surge could cover your house. We can rebuild buildings but can't rebuild your family. Uh, And he has put out an evacuation order. Yes, and I'm glad he has. Uh, This is going to cause a lot of damage along the coast. The storm surge especially um, puts, you know, human lives at risk. 
And so I think this is the right thing to do. Well, uh, indeed, for example, uh, the season opener of the uh, NFL uh, Miami Dolphins Tampa Bay Buccaneers, that's been <laughs> postponed uh, because of Irma. It'll be played in Miami on November the uh, the 19th. Uh, there are, uh, we were speaking earlier, and there are many uh, insurance claims that are going to be uh, filed uh, as part of this. What about the industrial uh, insurance aspect? You know, the refineries, the ships, uh, all of that infrastructure, that's got to have commercial insurance, no? Yeah, there's definitely going to be commercial impacts. I can't speak too much to the uh, insurance side of, um, in, you know, that's side of this right. whole lot, but... Um something we should look out for. Yeah, well, and, and in fact, the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo uh, Rossello, he declared a state of emergency and has also activated the uh, the National Guard. It, what about getting supplies to people uh, that need them? Is that going to be affected by, uh, I mean, it must be affected by the lack of transport. I mean, you're not going to be able to get water, plywood, batteries, and generators uh, if you can't actually physically get it there. Right. So, as far as preparations go, they will have to be, um, I think, you know, at, at this point, we're, we're kind of beyond the time um, that we can get things in or out of those areas. So most likely, we'll have to wait till after the storm passes to, you know, fly planes in or, or even um, barges or ships that can carry those kinds of goods. Shinando, what, what uh, have you just maybe just give us an update of what you've heard, for example, of uh, the rebuilding or revamping efforts as a result of Hurricane? Harvey in the in the Gulf because I know that was that was just the last hurricane. Yeah, yeah, and uh, this is the second major hurricane in a row that will be making landfall here in the U.S. Harvey's impacts, of course, are still ongoing. I mean, the rebuilding is just barely getting started. You know, along the the coast of Texas, um, the commercial side of things still still feeling those impacts as well. I mentioned previously that we had, you know, gasoline tankers um, that were not able to get to Florida and, uh, you know, deliver gasoline. And now as people are evacuating, um, there's definitely some tightness in the supply market over there as a result of that. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Shenandu Abbasu is our meteorologist, gas analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance, talking about uh, Hurricane Irma. Well, Hurricane Harvey's cost to the victims in the path and to taxpayers is still being calculated. Indeed, the governor of the state of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, he said that Texas could need more than $125 billion from the U.S. government. Well, what role will the insurance industry play in this? Jonathan Adams is our senior industry exec- uh, analyst for insurance. He's uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us now. You know, Jonathan, I'm trying to understand there are so many different types of insurance and one of the things I, I read recently is that uh, the Consumer Federation of America said that only 20% of the people in Texas who are affected by Hurricane Harvey have insurance. And then when I look at the details, it says private property insurance policies normally do not cover flooding. So I'm wondering, tell us the sort of disposition of who has insurance and who's on the hook for it. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So, um, in terms of consumers, you're exactly right. The number that um, purchase insurance independent of their normal homeowner's policy is a relatively small percentage. 
Um, having said that, most of those that do are the ones that are located in floodplains, and they will um, receive some uh, support from the National Flood Insurance Program. So um, that federally run program will uh, step in and be paying a large portion of the total insured loss for uh, individual homeowners. For um, commercial enterprises and for other types of losses, for example, there were half a million uh, vehicles at least that have been estimated to have um, been damaged in this storm. Um, ordinary auto policies will pick up that cost. So for the private insurance industry, um, a cost like that will in fact be picked up and those individuals uh, will be made whole for their loss. Okay, so let's move on then to what happens to, let's say, these commercial lines for things such as property, inland marine, uh, and related lines, right? I mean, that that is something that travelers as well as uh, Chubb, uh, well, that's the group, uh, is responsible for. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And um, certainly those companies do have some personal lines uh, coverage, but predominantly they're commercial riders and they will be paying uh, some flood losses because uh, that type of commercial policy um, does have an opportunity to bring in flood coverage uh, and some uh, individual companies will be uh, taking that, that coverage. And also important, business interruption. So if your uh, factory or store is closed because of a covered peril, you will receive uh, some reimbursement for that closure. Um, and companies like Travelers, uh, Chubb, and AIG all have fairly significant market share relative to the uh, industry as a whole. And um, they will certainly be uh, um, writing some checks to support um, uh, business owners uh, in Houston. Is there a, uh, is there something that we should know about the National Flood Insurance Program and how that works alongside private insurance? Well, I think um, the important part of that program is, unfortunately, that it, it's not priced um, very carefully in terms of the actual exposure that it takes. As a result, it's operating at a loss today. Um, this particular storm will make that worse. And really what Congress needs to do is to adjust those uh, prices that the NFIP charges in order for it to be a sustainable program. Uh, in terms of what it offers the individuals today, um, it's, it's pretty good coverage. It's up to $250,000 for an existing uh, residents plus $100,000 for content. So uh, the, the coverage is good. It just needs to be priced in a fashion that it can really um, be sustainable for um, all the people that depend upon it. And are there private insurance companies that actually participate in reinsurance that's then provided to the National Flood Insurance Program? Um, there are. The, the, the program has just recently begun to reinsure some of its exposure, and there were um, quite a few. In fact, 25 
reinsurers that participated in um, a, a contract where a billion dollars was put into the private sector. Um, there are various limits with regard to that, but my estimate is that probably the NFIP will collect um, a full billion dollars uh, to deal with its losses. And uh, those reinsurers would really run the gamut. Um, they're, they're typically smaller companies like a Renaissance Re or a Validus, but um, as I said, 25 participated, so it would also likely include the likes of, of the Munich Re's and the larger entities as well. But generally speaking, that risk has been spread, spread broadly, and it will affect the reinsurance companies, but uh, more importantly, um, it's providing participation by the private sector to support uh, this program that, as I said, we really need to have uh, continue in the future. Well, we're going to send that note to Congress. They got a lot on their docket that they need to do. Jonathan, last point to you. What about specialty insurance for things like refineries and uh, oil platforms? Um, those certainly are at risk as well, and there are a number of entities that are uh, specialty companies. Um, much of that coverage is in what's called the um, excess of surplus lines market, and um, it, it, it's highly technical because of the, uh, the difficulties of assessing the risk for those types of uh, plant right. equipment, but they will certainly um, be in the number of entities that will uh, see some reimbursement. Jonathan Adams, thank you so much. Senior Insurance Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I want to turn our attention now to an effort by the European Union to put together a regulatory framework that they say will protect investors. Now, this has to do with the research that investment professionals receive, how much they pay for it, and how much it is actually worth. Here to help us understand this issue is Larry Tab. He is the chief executive and the founder of the Tab Group. They're based in New York, and he joins me here in our 1130 studios. Larry, thank you very much for being Great here. Great to be here, Pam. It, I want, maybe you can just start us off by explaining how these regulations, uh, and I'll give the, the full name of it, right? It's Markets in Financial Instruments Directive. MIFID is the, the way the, the acronym, pros say the acronym now. Explain what it is and how does that fit into the world of investing What so people can understand it. So, so this is actually MIFID two. The first MIFID was somewhere around 2004. They're, and they're, they're updating the rules as we speak, or they just finished, and we're looking to go live January 3rd, 2018. Um, there are a couple of parts to it, but what they're trying to do is reduce conflicts of interest in the investment process. And one of the biggest things that they're trying to do is, is focus on how research is paid for. Traditionally, research has been kind of included um, you know, in being paid for as part of the trading commissions. When you send me an order, I send you research or I send you – more likely, I send you research on, on, in the desire for you to trade with me. Um, I know this company, so you should give your order to me. What, what Europe is trying to do basically is say that now that's kind of an inducement to trade. I'm giving you something of value on the hopes of you sending me um, orders. Um, and in, to a certain extent, an inducement is almost like a bribe. So I'm giving you research for the bribe for getting your, your order to me. So it's not just 
So it's not just so what they're trying to do is is split the payment for research um, away from uh, trading commissions and trying to get the buy side traders to focus only on best execution, not have to worry about research. Then have the research valued. So I have to make I have an agreement to value every piece of research or every research agreement that I have, and pay for it either out of uh, of hard dollars, basically write a check for it out of my own P&L, or really tightly align that with the customer, uh, the actual investor. So basically charge that research back to the individual customer. How does that work in a world where the research can't be linked? Well, maybe it can, but where I would think it'd be difficult to link to something that is revenue generating. In other words, it's great if you're making money, you're generating revenue, but if this is all a cost side of the business, how do you justify it and price it? Well, it's a little easier on the equity side because they're commissions. This is really difficult on the fixed income side, and the fixed income side is included in MIFID as well. So now, you know, on the fixed income side, we are not actually paying, you know, a basis points in commission or in the U.S., you know, cents per share. You actually have to figure out a way to value this thing, and they're still having problems with that. But, um, yeah, you know, People, the buy side firms, the firms have to decide how much is this research worth. Whether it's it could be a sec a sector that's completely you know we're not really interested, but I but I like these guys. They put out great insight. The sector's cool right now. I'm not investing in it, but I still want the research. You still have to come up with a value for it and pay for it, and then assign that payment to your client or pay for it out of your own P and L. So what is the the conflict or what is the challenge of implementing this and where are we in that process? Because the Securities and Exchange Commission has got to have a voice in this. Well, initially this was thought to be just a European problem and the SEC has basically said, you know what, we're not going to deal with this as a European problem and we're not going to worry about it. As we talk to institutional investors and traders, what we're finding out is that the, the institutions want one way of handling conflicts of interest and payment for research around the globe. As well as when you look at investment mandates, you know, you may not necessarily, you know, your investment mandate may be wide. It might be technology. So it might be Apple. It might also be Vodafone. So, so you know, a, a lot, you know, may not necessarily be geographically focused. So you wind up in these issues where, okay, well, this one I can, you know, charge through commissions. It's in the U.S. It's Apple. But, you know, this one's Vodafone. It needs to be paid for directly. So the buy side firms, the institutional investors kind of want one way of doing it. Now, where we are is that in the U.S., most firms have now, or a lot of firms, especially the larger ones, are, are starting to make uh, agreements for their research. They've kind of said, you know what, here's our research budget, budget. here's our execution budget. I'm a trader. I only worry about you know best execution. I might tack on a couple more cents per share to pay for the research. But the research has very little, if any, discretion into where I trade. Um, that that's a that's a significant portion of it. But does it does it's not really in fully unbundling in in terms of you know what Europe is saying because there those payments need to be then defined to me as an investor um, and how do I charge the client and what is the you know contract between me the institutional investor and the pension fund. And many of the firms have not really developed that. And then there are a number of other issues around, as I said, fixed income, uh, best execution analytics, and a couple of other things as well. Market structure issues in terms of dark pools and where things trade. It's a pretty encompassing set of regulations. 
sounds like this is not something that is set in stone by any means right now, and that's currently undergoing you know, a response from the industry. Well, so, the regulations are set in stone. Right, but I mean the response but, from the industry, but, what they're going to do. But uh, there, are, there are a number of folks, you know, we're talking with some of the largest institutional investors, and it, they're trying to get ready for January 3rd, but I'm not sure they're going to be there. Thank you very much. Larry Tab. always a pleasure. Chief Executive Founder of the Tab Group based in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.